Who's a good kitty? Who's a good little kitty cat? Who likes scratches on his little kitty cat chin? Fuzzy little kitty cat wumpus. Oh hey, swirling time vortex. Jeremy of the year 2019. It is I, Jeremy of the future. Oh sweet, my voice finally changed. When can I expect that? Uh, oh boy. It's really more of a Darth Vader, fire, lava, artificial voice box replacement situation. Let's not focus on that so much. Why are you here? Have you come to bring a message? Are you a Terminator? Are you a Terminator Dark Fate? Is everybody a Terminator? Is everybody a Cylon? What's Bro. the difference between a Cylon and a Terminator? Stop. Have you come back because of my kids? Does something need to be done about my kids? Do they become dorks? Wait, of course they become dorks. Have you come back to help me with my history lesson? Jesus Do you know Christ. when the Mongols ruled China? Have you come to kill me? Wait, that would kill you. Wait, does that kill you? Does this create multiple timelines? Are we in the Kelvin timeline? Are we in a J.J. Abrams timeline? Have we been in purgatory this whole time? Are we in a reboot? Oh god, we're no, in a fucking stop. reboot. I knew we were in a oh, reboot. We're not in a fucking J.J. Abrams movie. Oh, thank god. I just wanted to chat. Oh. I just came back to say... <coughs> Isn't it about time you release another podcast episode? Yeah, I know. Yeah. I just started a new job, and I've been working on the weekends, and in this episode we talk about fascism, and that's super heavy, so maybe I've been putting it off a little bit, but also I've been trying to wrap my head around fascism, and but it seems super relevant, so it also seems super important. I mean, it's called It's Now or Never, right? Yeah, but... Well, where I come from, it's never. Oh. I get what you're saying. You're saying the fate of the future rests on me putting out this next episode. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying if you put out another episode, then in the future, there is going to be another episode. That's it. Oh. It's Now or Never. A podcast about whatever the fuck I want. This episode is dedicated to Willem van Spronson. Here are some quotes for no particular reason. I swore never to be silent whenever and wherever human beings endure suffering and humiliation. We must always take sides. Neutrality helps the oppressor, never the victim. Silence encourages the tormentor, never the tormented. Sometimes we must interfere. Elie Wiesel, activist, writer, Holocaust survivor. The spirit of resistance to government is so valuable on certain occasions that I wish it to be always kept alive. Thomas Jefferson, in a letter to Abigail Smith Adams. I'm a black and white thinker. Detention camps are an abomination. I'm not standing by. I really shouldn't have to say any more than this. Excerpted from the final statement of Willem Van Spronson. Okay. Do I think throwing around Molotov cocktails to stop a bad situation is the right thing to do? I don't know. I wish it wasn't the right thing to do. I wish we never let things get so bad in the first place. I wish there was enough unified, effective opposition and less violent forms so actions like that wouldn't seem necessary to people like Vance Bronson. Certainly actions like that will further empower the narrative that Antifa is a group of domestic terrorists. But it's difficult to outpace the propaganda of the dominant systems of power anyway. And there's a very popular false equivalence between alt-right violence and so-called hard-left direct action. When the President of the United States calls for people to knock the crap out of protesters and encourages violence, the idea that passively yielding in the face of this rhetoric with violent consequences for real human beings the idea that the good and loving thing to do when violence is being done is just to frown, wring our hands, and wait for the next election cycle? That feels absurd. And it's an absurdity that empowers the violent. But I also understand thinkers like Noam Chomsky, who I greatly respect, who called Antifa a major gift to the right, including the militant right, and continued, when confrontation shifts to the arena of violence, it's the toughest and most brutal who win. And we know who that is. It's now or never doesn't mean panic. It doesn't mean lash out. It doesn't even mean live like there's no tomorrow. What it means is we have a choice of how we want to respond right now, knowing that we may not get another chance. And that's actually a huge question. I spent a lot of time getting stressed and anxious thinking about it. What the most appropriate response is to what's happening right now. And then I slowly realized 
collapse on this scale confrontation of the denial of death at the heart of civilization itself. It's like a weird Zen koan. Eventually, it just releases. Does that make sense? I don't know. It's two minutes to midnight on the doomsday clock. Climate awareness is spreading, yet our emissions continue to climb. At our current rate of emissions, we're on track for a six degree hotter planet on which humans cannot survive. CO2 levels in the ocean could be nearing a tipping point that would result in a massive extinction event on par with the Permian-Triassic mass extinction 250 million years ago. With our current rate of soil degradation, we may only have 60 years left of farming anyway. It's now or never means we don't have time for gradual transitions or for ramping down. We cannot trust our power structures and systems of control to save us because they're what's killing us. Our only available option is to somehow, quite suddenly and all at once, completely reverse direction on a global scale and start acting like our survival truly depends on us getting over all our shit. Anyway, let's get some guests up in here. Hey look, it's Ryan. We were in Boy Scouts together. Now he's like a government dude that works for the government and does government things. He probably knows how to solve the problem. Let's talk to him. Hey, how's it going? Pretty good, pretty good. Legislative session ended. Lots of bullshit. Some I was expecting, some I wasn't expecting. So for context... Yeah, so I just moved from Seattle down to the Olympia area to start a job doing uh, legislative analysis for... Um, policy, specifically tax policy, although pretty much anything that gets passed has a monetary aspect to it, so we handle a whole lot of legislation. Well, like I wrote a bill this year that provides a tax exemption for a certain hospital, all the way up to people trying to redo the entire tax code. Environmental stuff, uh, like I just handled a overhaul of like oil spill taxes this year that did pass. And just to be clear, you are speaking here today officially on behalf of the Washington state government. Any opinion you give on any TV series or anything like that is officially representative of the state of Washington. Yeah, and the Inslee campaign, actually. Oh, did you hear about the press passes all getting revoked? The White House? I heard that there was some new bullshit rule that basically made a bunch of people's press passes invalid. Like, you have to be there, like, so many ridiculous number of days out of the year to have a valid press pass. It's like 90 days out of the last 180 days, and then they haven't held a press conference for, like, 65 days. <laughs> so you just have to have been there for half of the fucking year. Yeah. And then they're just granting special exceptions to the people they like. Yeah, because they got in trouble. So there was that guy who doctored a video to make it look like he was karate chopping an intern, and it was ridiculous. And then, right. I don't remember the name of the Supreme Court decision, but there was an old Supreme Court decision, I want to say from the 70s, late 70s, that basically says it's a violation of... You you know, the freedom of press to get rid of somebody's White House press pass without a good reason. So they kind of backed off of that, let that guy back in. So I think this is potentially a tactic where they're just like, well, we'll just make a rule where we ban everybody and then it's not discrimination. And then we selectively let the people we want back in instead of banning the people we don't want. So yeah, that's great. That really speaks volumes about the state of our democracy, I guess. Right. When we were setting up to record, because I had voices turned off, you jokingly called me a fascist because I wasn't letting you <laughs> speak. I know there's a lot of people calling people fascists right now. Do you think that that is really something that deserves to be looked at and paid attention to, like the characteristics of fascism? Well, it really depends on who you ask. There's this big long list of aspects of fascism. So he's this Italian guy, I might be saying it wrong, Umberto Eco? But he's not a political scientist. He was a literary critic, he was a novelist, he was a philosopher, but he did live in Italy in the aftermath of World War II. A lot of people like to use his list. It's like a list of, you know, things to look for for fascism. Mm -hmm. A lot of his signs do line up with things that have happened in the U.S., are you suffering from racial scapegoating? Are detention centers popping up around you? Are the police getting a little too brutal and abusive? Hi, I'm Dr. Umberto Eco, author of Ur Fascism. Fascism is a terrible disease that afflicts governments all over the world. Has your government contracted fascism? Watch out for these symptoms. The cult of tradition. The rejection of modernism. The cult of action for action's sake. Disagreement as treason. A fear of difference. Appeal to social frustration. The obsession with a plot. Statements painting the enemy as both strong and weak. Claims of pacifism as trafficking with the enemy. A contempt for the weak. Educating everyone to become a hero. Machismo and weaponry. Selective populism. Newspeak. These symptoms may appear not only in legislation, 
but in the rhetoric of those filling the highest offices of power. If you notice one or more of these symptoms, you may be in the early stages of slipping into fascism. Consult your conscience to determine if Antifa is right for you. Antifa is a decentralized movement that opposes fascism. Side effects may include thrown milkshakes, minor acts of property damage, and, in rare cases, the punching in the face of alt-right adjacent trolls. Antifa may not be right for everyone. Do not take Antifa if you are pregnant or nursing, or secretly a cop. Consider the moral and ethical implications of participating in acts of violence. While Umberto Eco is a celebrated thinker, his doctorate in philosophy is honorary. But it's sort of this philosophical perspective that's not really looking at the the structure of the government or how fascists rise to power or any of those sort of things. I would argue that more of a political science or economics or like political systems analysis wouldn't give you the same warning signs, I guess, of a fascist rise to power. Which is not to say that there aren't bad things going on, and it's not to say that there's not things we should be very guarded against. I don't see a military coup happening. I don't see Trump refusing to leave office. I don't see any of that happening. I'm not worried about like a like a military uprising or a coup or like proud boys in the streets with AK-47s. Not to say any of that stuff is healthy. You don't think it's going to be dominant enough? No, I don't think so. Your call has been forwarded to an automatic voice message system. At the tone, please record your message. Hey, I feel like I gotta interject here. When Ryan and I were talking about fascism, and here he was sort of getting a little dismissive about calling Trump a fascist, I have to admit, it kind of irked me a little bit. Not because I think he's wrong. No, he's totally right. The word fascist has been variously defined, and that definition has always been sort of slippery, subject to change, depending on who's using it. Even back in 1944, George Orwell lamented, as used, the word fascism is almost entirely meaningless. Except for the relatively small number of fascist sympathizers, almost any English person would accept bully as a synonym for fascist. That is about as near to a definition as this much-abused word has come. According to Noam Chomsky, the linguist and notorious leftist thinker I quoted earlier, Trump is more of a bully and a populist demagogue, but probably not a fascist by any strict political definitions. Historian Robert Paxton, who wrote a book about fascism, also commented in a Vox interview, I don't think it helps very much to use this inflammatory term fascism about Trump. Populist demagogue works fine. Maybe the vagaries and abuse of the word fascism does make it worth seeking alternatives. We don't have to say the Trump administration and the militaristic white and Christian supremacist cultural current it feeds on is uncontroversially fascist by any technical definition. It just comes from this kind of emotional place of not being super interested in policing how the word fascist is used. Like when Representative Elon Omar called Donald Trump a fascist. I don't think they're wrong, and what they mean by that, I think they're absolutely right. Even if they're using the word fascist in a non-technical way. And I think it's more valuable to focus on the ways in which they're right by what they're intending to communicate than it is to get too caught up in the particular definitions of fascism. We're not fascist Italy or Nazi Germany. We're Trumpist America. And there's just a lot of fucked up kind of fashy shit going around. All right. Apologies to Ryan. Back to the conversation. Populism is its own different disease, and we're seeing it all over the world. We're not seeing very many violent revolutions. We're seeing populist leaders coming into power. You've got Duterte in the Philippines. You've got Erdogan in Turkey. There's, I forget the guy's name, in India. There's all sorts of populist leaders coming to power, and it's happening more and more. And they're adopting terrible policies, and they could be considered despots, but with some exceptions, they're usually actually elected. Like the guy in India, I don't think there was foul play in the election. Obviously with Trump, I don't think there was really foul play in the election, at least once you get past the primaries. But that doesn't mean that the policies that they put into place can't be extremely harmful. We're just not seeing somebody creating a private military and taking over the government and creating a one-party fascist state. As bad as things are, there's still two parties in the US. I don't think the Democratic Party is going to be wiped out or become forbidden. We're not going to see a one-party fascist state. I just can't see it happening. If anything, we're going to get more parties because we've got division in both parties at a level that's unprecedented, at least in my lifetime. Do you think that if Trump was more competent, 
we would have more cause for worry? That's an interesting question, because if he were more competent, then he wouldn't be making some of the idiotic decisions that he's making. If he was able to successfully and competently execute ideas that he wouldn't have had were he competent to begin with, then we would be in much more trouble. I do think that his ineffectiveness is... While embarrassing, it is a little bit of a boon. Say, for example, if we impeached and removed Trump from office, say that we were able to do it, snap our fingers, we Thanos him out of the White House, Pence is in charge. If anything, I think Pence is a more insidious and more effective agent for the type of change that we definitely don't want to see in this country. We being you and I, I'm sure there are plenty of people who do, but bringing it back around, I think we see the same sort of using fascists as more of a name-calling than an actual description of a political system. I think we see this, the same thing with people being called communists or even just socialists. I think a lot of people are advocating something like a Nordic model, and I would say even Bernie Sanders doesn't truly advocate socialism. I found it kind of strange that he's embraced the term. Like, if you were to ask him, I don't think he would shy away from the word socialism at all. But if you go to the states that he really would try to emulate, your Nordic model states and Scandinavia, that sort of thing, they don't consider themselves socialist. They all call themselves capitalist. And I would say that the communists and socialists I've heard of do not consider Bernie Sanders a socialist and are kind of disheartened that the term is now being centered on him. Yeah, there are people who are full-on socialists, obviously. They don't have the backing to get a candidate into the power. So while that is a, a like a lofty goal in the long term, it's not a, a short-term factor, I guess, in the election. We're not going to see a full-on socialist candidate with any sway in this next election, which I think this next election is going to be a big deal. There's a lot of decisions that are going to be made in this next election that can't be undone. Uh, assuming Ruth Bader Ginsburg makes it to this next election, she probably won't make it to the one following. So if we have Trump reelected, instead of just seeing the court go back to closer to a deadlock, we're going to see it swing right which is a big deal. That's one of the few things you can't really quickly and easily undo. So while lofty goals are good, and while long-term goals are good, I'm more focused on what's going to happen in the next few years. Also, for context, you and I have known each other for a long time. You've always been more uh, of a pragmatist. Like you, you tend to think in like practical systems and practical solutions. I've always been more attracted to, you know, broad concepts and starry-eyed idealism. And Yeah, and, and both of them are important because, you know, you have to make baby steps towards big changes. So if you don't right. have somebody with a long-term goal to make baby steps towards, then, you know, what are you doing? But if all you have is a lofty goal and there's no way to execute it, then... You just have meetings. Yeah. <laughs> meetings to plan the future meetings. Yep. If Trump gets reelected, how do you think the Democratic Party is going to respond to this? Because I think there's a lot of displeasure with the Democrats, even liberals, I think are kind of getting disheartened. I mean, Biden is still popular for some fucking reason, but I'm seeing a little more animosity directed to the Democrats. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. You've got your old school Pelosi Democrats, and then you've got your progressives, and that ranges anywhere from Elizabeth Warren to Ocasio-Cortez, and they don't really agree. You got Pelosi fighting with Ocasio-Cortez like the minute she walked into the house. I'm hoping that there's enough of a threat for the left to put aside some differences and elect a candidate. But I would say, even in this last election, I don't think the Republicans won the last election. I think the Democrats lost the last election because they were unable to step past differences that they had within the party and actually put forward a unified front. I mean, I think there were a lot of issues in the last election. I think there were a lot of people that were like, well, I guess Clinton's better. And then there were people on the far right that were like, woohoo, yeah, make America great again. It's easier to get excited about a woohoo candidate than a well, I guess so candidate. And then, you know, that's putting aside all of the, the crap that happened in the primaries beforehand. Like, there was good reason to be pissed off about what happened within the DNC before the election. So I'm hoping we don't see that again. Well, do you, I mean, the DNC seems like kind of entrenched. Do you think that they're willing to change enough to, I guess, meet the progressives halfway or, or to like get enough progressive support? I think so. I know that they got enough bad press last go around that hopefully they'll at least try to look like they're more. Um... I have noticed them trying to look like they're more dot dot dot, but I don't know if I've really <laughs> noticed them being more dot dot dot. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I'm, I'm not as involved in that process. I mean, I, I deal with both caucuses, Senate Republican caucus and the Senate Democratic caucus. I've dealt with both of them pretty extensively now in the actual legislative process. And they're they're both kind of weird and secretive and closed door. And 
I don't know that that's ever going to change. But I think that might be more of a political tactic thing within the legislature. But there is lots of closed-door deals and that sort of thing. They'll pause hearings and say, we're going to break for caucus. They'll go into side rooms. They'll whisper to each other about who's voting for what and that sort of thing, and then come back out and vote. And you have no idea what was said behind closed doors. Sometimes bills will just die, and you don't know why, and all the discussion as to why they let it die was behind closed doors, and you'll never know. Okay, wait, I have a proposal. Every time you break for caucus, everyone who's breaking has to take a shot. Oh, God. So then the more times they do that, the more loose-lipped they're going to be. So they have to think like, okay, well, what if I'm going to accidentally say all the secret stuff I just whispered? You know, you have to get strategic with it. In the Oregon legislature, and there might be some of this going on in Washington, too, I'm just not aware of it. They do have Screwdriver Fridays where they're already drinking pretty solidly. Okay. I almost wonder if you wouldn't even have to require taking a shot if you just allowed whiskey <laughs> in those pockets. You just put a bottle out. That, that could be all you need. <laughs> That's not illegal. Like, anyone can do that. Just, like, gift the room a bottle. Save democracy. I can't think of a better way to increase transparency and severely degrade the quality of floor amendments as well. Ugh, as if we needed more. Have you been following any of the stuff coming out of Eastern Washington and the- Dude, I live in fucking Florida. I got enough to worry about down here. Yeah, I was gonna say, you probably have plenty of weird issues going on down there already. So basically, there's this guy, his name is Matt Shea. He is a Republican in the House of Representatives in Washington. He represents Spokane Valley. Like a couple days before the last election, it came out that he had written this manifesto about how to handle a theocratic takeover, like a military coup, where the Christian right would be able to basically take over the country. They would say, if you don't meet our demands, we would kill every male. And then like some sort of Handmaid's Tale situation with all the unbelieving women, I guess. But this was like the day before the election. But in Washington, you don't go to the polls. It's all mail-in vote, which is usually actually a great thing to do because then people don't have to get to the polls. They don't have to get time off work. They don't have to worry about the logistics of getting to a polling place. But what it also means is that when something comes out the day before the election, everybody's already mailed their ballots. So he got elected, re-elected, the day after this manifesto came out. <laughs> Oh, Christ. Yeah, it's this guy, <sighs> he said the Southern Poverty Law Center was the most dangerous organization in the country. He's been on Weird Prepper. It was like a Discord or an IRC channel talking about how they would set up their intimidation tactics and, and like violent clashes with Antifa when Antifa finally rises up and starts a civil war. Like he's expecting Antifa to start a civil war. Right. Like there's enough of them and they're organized internally enough to be starting a civil war right now. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and he, his uh, screen name was True Warrior in Latin. <sighs> and he was like helping people carry out background checks on activists. Like there'd be these survivalist alt-right people in this chat trying to get background checks on Antifa activists and quote communists. Shea volunteered to do the background checks, and it's not clear whether he used state resources to do that. If he did, that's a huge problem. But anyone can privately order a background check, so it's not clear that he did that. So that's not great for a state rep. It's a bad look. Yeah. He also, his wife got a protective order after he was like violent with like domestic violence and emotionally abusive. And then he got arrested for pulling a gun in a road rage incident. And this is back in like the late 2000s. So this is all known stuff. He's still getting reelected because it's Spokane Valley. And then we had two different Republicans, one senator and one representative. They got a half a million dollar a year lobbying contract with the Cambodian government. Basically, Cambodia does not have a functioning democracy. They've got a effectively a dictator who has puppet elections. And they've hired Senator Erickson. And then I know there's at least one House Republican representative. This Erickson guy, I've dealt with this guy. Like, I've had to respond to requests from this guy. Can you introduce a bill to kick his ass? <laughs> kind of. Like, he might get censured by the, the legislature, which is kind of like a legislative way of verbally kicking someone's ass. <laughs> so let me ask, do you think Trump is at least normalizing the outlandish shenanigans enough that someone like this asshole might come up after him? 
Absolutely. And actually, I was, I think I just got sidetracked before when I, we were talking about what would happen if Thanos snapped his fingers and made Pence the president. He, he's more insidious, which I think I said before, but he's also less emboldening. Like, I don't think anybody would be like, Pence is president now, we've got a new America. Like, that's, I don't think that's a thing that people would take to nearly as much as Trump. Because Trump is a marketing guy. Like, his businesses have not done well. He's wealthy, and money makes money, and he's going to always be wealthy, but that doesn't mean he's good at it. Even his book about business was written by a ghostwriter. There's basically nothing about him that's actually competent aside from his ability to get people whipped up. That's all he does. He's a game show host. He's a brand builder. And that's not something I can't imagine Pence getting anybody riled up about anything. Right. Do you think anyone would have given half of a shit about Pence if not for Trump? <laughs> not at all. I think Pence was just the person who finally eventually said yes to running as his running mate. Because mm. I think out of the Republicans that ran, I think Kasich was probably the most reasonable. And Kasich's campaign said he was approached by the Trump campaign and was offered the vice presidential appointment, obviously before the general election. Kasich said he was offered the vice presidential ticket and he was offered full control of domestic and foreign policy, which that's just everything. That's the entire presidency. It's like, basically, it would be Kasich running the country with Trump as a hype man and then signing executive orders that people suddenly have to deal with. But all the operation of the country really would have fallen to Kasich. But Kasich didn't think Trump was going to win. Nobody did. So he said no. I don't know how many people he went through, but Pence was just the first one who was like, yeah, sure. So it makes me wonder how far down the list he got. Because Pence, Pence wasn't even running. He was pretty much a nobody. He definitely made a power move in his career. Like, there's no way he would have been this influential had this perfect storm not hit. I wonder what was going through Pence's mind when he was approached. So he like, go home and he's like, it's finally it, mama. Your boy Mikey's hitting the limelight, going to the big town. <laughs> I wonder if he was trying to leverage it into something. I feel like almost everybody involved in the, the Trump campaign was trying to leverage a losing campaign into an, a new position. I think even Trump wanted to launch like a Trump news channel or like get a show on Fox or yeah. like start a cable channel. I think it was almost like, you know, the plot of the show, The Producers? Where they're like, you know, you could make more money off of a Broadway play that fails than one that succeeds if you just do it right. I think the producers and the Trump campaign are basically identical. It's like, well, let's run and then like, we're going to lose. But at the end, we'll have all these rabid supporters. We're st we'll start a media group. We'll write books. We'll go on Fox and Friends. And then they won and they're all like, oh, crap. At what point do you think Trump was like, you know what? I bet I could do a great job being the president. Like, do you think he freaked out a little bit and then just decided, I'm going to do the best job I can? Or do you think he started, like, drinking his own Kool-Aid a little bit? I mean, he's a full-on narcissist. I think he thinks he would do a good job and has for decades. What do you think the odds are that he really has a copy of Mein Kampf by his bedside? Have you heard that one? I, I have. I have heard that one. I, I do not buy it. I could see if he had, like, a bookshelf with all these power books on it, Art of War and a bunch of stuff, and I could see him owning a copy of it, but I, I can't see it sitting on his bedside table. Yeah, you don't think it's, like, his Bible where he's just hanging out oh, with it? no way. That doesn't make any sense. I am willing to believe that, like, because of his narcissism, that he would have, like, narcissism power heroes that have nothing to do with their ideology, but just, like, these guys were good at getting attention and getting people to do what they wanted. Yeah, I could see him, his entire deal is he has a cult of personality, so I could see him studying anybody else who ever had a cult of personality. That, that wouldn't surprise me at all. Studying is a little, I don't know if I'd go that far, but maybe, <laughs> like, he'd have people, like, cut together audiobook clips for him or something. Yeah, I, I sincerely doubt he's got, you know, like, a big whiteboard full of all of his different power moves he's going to make and this big theory of how to become a cult of personality, but... Hey, he's playing four-dimensional chess. He's doing the real work. He's kicking those pedophile Illuminatis of the deep state out of Washington. Out of that pizza parlor basement, was it? Yeah. Yeah. Pedophile pizza parlor. Yeah, the three P's. Pet Pedoronis. <laughs> Are you familiar with the whole QAnon thing? I'm vaguely familiar. I'm aware of what it is. And like, there are people primarily on 4chan and 4chan derivatives that think that there's somebody that's close to or part of the Trump administration that is sending them secret messages and influencing the president to send secret messages. And I don't know if it's... It's one of those things where I can't tell if it's a joke for most of the people who... Like, I'm sure there are people who legitimately believe that QAnon stuff is real, but I could also totally see a bunch of 4chan people joking about, oh, he made this hand signal, and that means this because of this and this and this, and like, you know, QED, uh, it means there's lizard people, lol. 
I almost wonder if it's a combination of both. Like, started out as a joke, and then people took it seriously, and then it went off the deep end, or... Yeah, it's hard to say for the movement, if you can call it that in general, but I, I poked at it a little bit, and there was that Podesta one, where supposedly some photo of him surfaced, covered in, like, body paint, and that smocking was actually a term for that, so when Trump accidentally tweeted smocking gun instead of smoking gun, <laughs> he, yeah. was, he was giving it to Podesta. Like, these, just these weird leaps in logic, just because they don't want to believe that Trump Trump is capable of making a typo. Like, Kafefe is a secret message. Right. I tried to find how that originated, and I found what I thought was the original 4chan post the smocking gun, if you will. Mm -hmm. And it looked like it was a joke. Like it looked like it was just someone fucking around. But by the time it gets to boomer Twitter, you have people taking it seriously. And like, I was making fun of QAnon on Twitter and I got some boomer Twitters, Twitlers telling me like, oh, go check out the Podesta photos. They're from like the Hillary email leaks or something like that. I'm like, excuse me? Where are the email leaks are these? There's just enough lost in translation and enough confusion about it and enough lack of fact checking or checking sources or anything like that, where there are like true believers. I, I think like with many things from 4chan, it was started as a joke. I can't believe that people are believing this stuff. It's like flat earth. Like, how can you possibly yeah. believe that? The globe has been understood for literally thousands of years, but somebody really wants to believe a conspiracy theory, so they do. And then there's there's people out there on 4chan who think it's hilarious to be able to... I mean, like, you and I would, would do the same thing in, in certain situations of come up with an uh, absurd explanation for something that's obviously wrong, but it's funny because it's absurd. Yeah. And then we laugh about it. It'd be like if we did that, but it was publicly visible and somebody saw it and they're like, you know, I bet that's true. And that's, <laughs> that's what even By George, these two geniuses cracked it. <laughs> Because who would have thought, because the Flat Earth Society, without a doubt, originally was a joke. Right. But now it's something that people actually believe. Like, it, it really makes me, like, I want to be more careful about what kind of jokes I'm telling, just in case. Yeah, because you never know when someone out there is going to be deluded enough to believe a series of insane leaps of logic just because they're sick of believing reality. Or they're so distrustful of the establishment, as it were, that anything that you tell them that says the establishment is lying to you they're automatically on board anything from flat earth to vaccines to to whatever else did you know that vaccines cause the earth to flatten look it up you need to edit some wikipedia articles before i look that up <laughs> <laughs> i'm actually just thinking like shit i have to cut that out before anyone takes me seriously okay so here's a fun question what is the weirdest thing that you think might actually be true wherever that line is for you where it borders on plausibility and strangeness Man, that's a good question. I usually don't entertain really out there ideas. Like you said, I'm a pragmatist, so it's like, well, this isn't going to have a, an effect on, on me or what I need to do. So I usually don't really go into it too deeply. My dad has gotten weirdly into those Bigfoot documentaries. I say documentaries yeah. on, on like History Channel or whatever. He's way into that. So I thought that was funny. I gave him a hard time about I that. I want to call up your dad. <laughs> He's going to bro down about Bigfoot. I definitely think aliens are a distinct possibility. I think it's less likely that they have been here or that they have been abducting people and like greys are a thing and Roswell was a thing. I'm less convinced by that, but I'm definitely convinced that extraterrestrial life in some form is almost a inevitability. Like there's got to be something out there. Now, whether it's just ooze in a puddle or something that's vastly intelligent, who knows? Or if we'd even recognize it if we saw it. Do you think there's anything weird going on with any of the abduction or contact or sighting reports or anything like that? Or do you think there's more mundane explanations for all of that? I think a lot of them can be explained through things like sleep paralysis or hallucination just in general. Like people like being stuck to a table with shadowy figures around them. That sounds like sleep paralysis to me. I mean, you've had people making claims like that back thousands of years, and that's where the idea of like the succubus and incubus came from. So... <sighs> I'm not very convinced by that, but I think sightings of unidentified flying objects are probably legit. If you think about the things that the military has that we know about, 
and how we came to know about things that were classified. Like if you look at the so the SR-71 Blackbird was classified for years and years and years. And back in, I want to say the 60s, it was capable of taking aerial photographs from super high up very, very quickly. I want to say it could photograph the entire surface of the country of Italy in four seconds, and you could pick out a golf ball in the photo, as I want to say, the anecdote I've heard. They were doing that in the 60s, and we didn't know about it until was it the late 80s or the early 90s. It finally got declassified almost by accident. So you and I and Glenn, who was on episode 10, went to... At what point do we open ourselves up to like, <laughs> can we name names? Can we say, you know what? It was, uh, it was Jay-Z Knight's little compound, right? The Ramtha School yeah, of Enlightenment. Ramtha. I think that was a really interesting experience. And I don't think we should necessarily go into how we got in or... <laughs> oh, no. I feel like, <laughs> I feel we like, were allowed there. Yeah, we, we were, we we didn't were allowed sneak in, in. But if they knew why we were there, they might not have been as happy about it. So we'll leave that right. part out. But basically, so the Ramtha School of Enlightenment is basically it's this lady who was a big deal in the 80s, and it was a celebrity religion, and she claims to channel a, was it an Atlantean warrior? Lemurian, Lemur- I believe. Lemurian, is that, were they antagonists of one another? I forget exactly I how that so. works. I think so. I think it was the Lemurians versus the Atlanteans. Anyway, so when we went there, it was during the time period where they had just released that that movie, right? The What the Bleep Do We Know? Do you remember oh, right. that? Where they were that movie where they were talking about? Now I never actually saw that movie, but I I understand that at least while we, they, we were there, they had this big emphasis on harnessing quantum physics using the power of your brain to change the past. Yeah. And we heard the story about somebody using it to commit insurance fraud, and it was great. Do you remember? Yes. Do you remember that? <laughs> I do remember that. So the story was this guy rented a car, like at an airport, rent a car or whatever, drove it, crashed it, and then went back in time not to prevent the crash but to purchase the optional insurance on his rental car. My favorite part of that was the forging your mental bonds with your soul brother. I don't know what they call it. Mm-hmm. Where you, they gave you like two seconds to make a drawing, and and if you draw the same thing as your partner, then clearly you forged this quantum link between your psyches. But they'll tell you to like draw an animal, and they'll give you five seconds right. to do it. Like, what the hell are you going to draw? There's, there's like two animals, cat and dog. <laughs> <laughs> Those are the two animals. Well, if you're going to draw something in two seconds, then that's what you're going to draw. Nobody's out there drawing a giraffe. It was just really interesting to see how they manipulated people. Right. This was also a time when I was reading, like, Michael Shermer, Why People Believe Weird Things, and stuff like that. So it was really interesting for me to have labels for the cognitive mistakes they were making. Like, for that one, the whole, like, draw an animal. I don't remember. One of them was, like, draw a fruit or something like that. But these... These were like really like basic categories where there's usually like everyone's going to think of the same thing or there's a high likelihood of coincidence. But then they would do this like really on the nose version of counting the hits and forgetting the misses because every time both people drew the same thing, they would put it on a wall. So you have this giant wall of, you know, what they're portraying as mounting evidence of psychic communication or something like that. But then you look at the wall and it's like most of the animals are fucking cats and dogs. And then there's like slightly less ponies, slightly less bears. And then like one zebra. It's like there's just this perfect like bell curve of animal probability. But to them, that's evidence. Yeah. Well, and some of them were obvious to the point of where it's like... I think one of them was like, draw a plant. I forget. But everybody drew the exact same stick figure flower. So you could look at the wall and it's not like, oh, these two people had a link. It's like, oh, well, these thousand people must have all had the exact same link because they all drew the one flower that everybody knows how to draw. It's very clear that they're just drawing the only thing they could possibly think of. Yeah. And I, I even heard like some people who are kind of on the fence about the whole thing walking around the wall and then they would find like one thing that was uncommon. Say like two people drew an eggplant or something like that. Something you might not have thought of or <laughs> some obscure animal like a platypus. Psychically texting each other the eggplant emojis back and forth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This was kind of before emojis was a thing, really. Like you, you had to use like there was texting, but you had to use like actual text characters to do it. And so like the eggplant emoji wasn't really a thing. But you know what? This is a this was evidence of precognition 
But anyway, I saw the, I would hear comments like, oh, wow, well, there's no way they could have, like, coincidentally both done that one, even though if you got that many people doing it, of course, you're going to get some uncommon outlier coincidences. And I think we're possibly even giving them more credit than they're due. I don't think they would be above drawing two pictures of a zebra just to put it up on that wall. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I'm even just assuming that they're not being intentionally deceptive. Do you remember the bookstore with the video game? There was this weird, like, enclosed gazebo, like, weirdly, like, octagonal gift shop. Yeah, I remember the gift shop. They had, like, this little King's Quest, like, point-and-click adventure game where you wander around and, like, I don't think there were goals or even things you could do beyond look at weird pictures and click on people and listen to them talk to you. But it was, like, this weird, like, <laughs> if... Oh, yeah! <laughs> Shit. I remember that now. So bizarre. Wow. Now that I'm thinking about it, that little gift shop felt like a new age Christian family bookstore. It really, it really did. It had all of the like saccharine aesthetic of the Christian family bookstore, but like fairies and shit instead. You know yeah. what I mean? And I feel like that's an experience that I wish more people could <laughs> walk through something like that in a clearly like cold context and see these are tactics that something that you honestly believe, like if you're a member of any major religion, I would argue that uh, many or most of them come from a core of good intention, at least on paper. But you'd see the same manipulation tactics coming from something that's a clear cash grab. Even if you are religious, seeing someone employing tactics and being able to recognize those same tactics from people within your own religion is a good context to have, I yeah. suppose. And I'll agree with you. I don't think any of the world's religions started with like a sociopath deciding they were going to figure out how to like get some money or clout or whatever. But sociopaths definitely have a boner for that kind of thing. Like they'll figure out how to use that. Yeah, if I was a sociopath and I wanted to like influence a bunch of people, becoming a religious teacher would be a great way to go. And that says more about me than it does about the religion, and it says more about the manipulative leader than it does about the religion as a whole. But man, if you've got a bunch of people that are geared up and ready to believe whatever you say to them, that sounds like a pretty good place to start. Yeah, it's hard to see your own cognitive blind spots. I mean, they're, they're blind spots. It's hard to see, you know, how your ego is kind of maybe keeping some information at, at arm's length. But it's easy to see other people's blind spots. It's easy to see how other people are being manipulated or how other people are maybe ignoring some some information or some techniques or something like that. So I think that, that, that would be pretty useful if everyone could just have a stroll through what they would define as a weird belief system or something like that, just to see what it looks like from the outside. Yeah, just to see what those tactics look like, just so that you can recognize them when you do see them. Do you remember the painting on the inside of their like the like God reaching out to give life to Adam, like the the touching fingers thing or something? It was something weird like oh, that. Oh, I bet it was that one. <laughs> it's just like if you hired a recent art school graduate to do it, and, like it was like a stencil trace of the And like they had money. Like they clearly had money. She got some like Hollywood money converts. So I mean it was a pretty it was it was a big mansion. Yeah, and it like overlooks the field where people will park their RVs. Right. And do their archery, their blindfolded archery practices. Quantum archery. Quantum archery. Yeah, you haven't missed until you observe that you missed. Do you think maybe the whole Marvel universe thing, given like the mini worlds interpretation of quantum physics, you're just seeing the one world where Hawkeye actually makes all of these incredible shots. <laughs> You know, the whole narrative of the Marvel Universe is just following this one world outcome where he's just like fucking nailing every single shot he's making, like only in a world where there's all kinds of blue aliens and shit and robot suits and junk like that and magic is this guy like nailing every fucking shot. Like maybe he's not even a good archer. Doctor Strange is out there looking at all the different possibilities for what could have happened. And it's all just him. <laughs> just like I've watched Hawkeye fuck up every shot for 14 million <laughs> universes. <laughs> This is my headcanon now. I choose to believe this. Do you want to talk about climate change at all? Yeah. 
I feel like I have a, a new perspective on that at, because I've been handling the policy end of it. Like I've handled multiple green energy bills and that sort of thing in the legislature. So again, from a very pragmatic perspective, I've kind of seen what types of things people are trying to do in the political realm. And Jay Inslee, obviously, he's running for president and he has a very green ticket. Like that's like 100% of his talking points right now. And that comes through with like executive request legislation, that sort of thing coming through. So I've, I've seen it more from the rubber meets the road perspective, I guess, figuring out how people are using their political capital to try to push for these things and what kind of resistance they meet and how lobbyists respond is really interesting. You never really see people, at least in Washington, you don't see lobbyists show up and in a bald faced way say, well, this is going to hurt our profits, so don't do it. You see people show up and try to degrade the legislation, I guess, nickel and dime it down to the point where it doesn't hurt them as much. Because they know Jay Inslee is the governor. You've got Democrats control the House, Democrats control the Senate. You're not going to be able to walk into a hearing and say, well, we don't like this because we would prefer to continue to pollute for profit. That's not something that's going to get any traction. But if you go in and say, we like the direction you're going, we would love to work with you to understand how to best approach this problem. Maybe next year's better because there's parts of this this legislation that, you know, are going to present barriers from an like, administrative angle or from, like, we just don't think this is well thought out and we want to help you write the legislation, which is basically sort of like a kind of that regulatory capture kind of angle where if you let, say, a coal company write a coal bill, it's going to be a very different bill. But if you have somebody who knows nothing about coal write a, a bill about coal, it's also not going to make any sense. There was a bill that passed this year that I worked on that basically oil prices have been unstable and the fund that pays for oil spill response and cleanup has been an ad valorem tax, which means it's based on the value of the oil that's coming in. But the price of all that fell like a rock. So the same amount of oil is being imported to Washington, but the funds for cleaning up oil spills and that sort of thing dropped along with the price of oil. So you have the same number of gallons, but you have less money to deal with it. So they switched it this year to a flat fee, and they went through multiple iterations. Department of Ecology was involved, petroleum associations were involved, other interested parties got involved, like airlines... So I went through a ton of iterations and all sorts of proposals. Everybody was trying to figure out a way to swing the legislation their direction. A lot of the proposals we saw, I can't discuss because they never became public, but there were some really just absolute off the wall, like how could you ever possibly think this would work? A good example that there's more public about is hybrid cars, fuel efficient cars, and electric cars have decreased the income on gas tax in Washington. So our road systems are almost entirely, well, I don't want to say almost entirely, a significant portion of it is funded through the gas tax. But when you have cars that are fuel efficient or aren't using gas at all, they're not paying gas tax. So then the roads start degrading. And even though the number of miles being driven in the state increases, the amount of money you have to fix the roads falls. So they're trying to figure out a way to address that. They're proposing a bunch of different ideas for tracking how many miles people drive and then charging them by mile. But then the question becomes, how the hell do you do that? There's a pilot program right now where you have to install a government tracking device in your car so that they can watch how far you drive on GPS, basically. That seems like something that's going to find a whole lot of resistance. Like, it seems like a government overreach. I can't imagine somebody in a rural eastern Washington town is going to be like, yeah, sure, I want a government tracking device in my truck. I can't imagine that being popular with anyone. Right? So, like, and this is something that they have decided is a good enough idea to, I think they have a pilot program for it. And, like, people have signed up to try it out. And I think they're trying to base it on those devices you can get from a insurance company. Some insurance companies will give you a discount if you install one of these things. The pilot program stuff is kind of similar to that. That's that's still like... I can see that flying, though. Because you, if you give people the choice, but then you incentivize the choice. Yeah, if it's like, here, the default tax is high, but you can get a discount on the tax by installing this thing, is very different than everybody has to have this thing. But even then, like... How would you do it, though? Would you have people paying, like, a $2,000 tab? And that's super aggressive if it applies to everybody. Would it be based on what kind of car you have and how polluting it is or how, how hard it is on the roads? Or like, a heavier cars pay more? That gets regressive, too, because if you have an older car, it pollutes more, it's heavier. You have to drive more because you're commuting into Seattle. Like, you're driving from Kent to Seattle to work as a security guard in Pacific Place versus you work at Amazon and you walk to work every day because you live in South Lake Union, you'll have somebody making 300 grand paying zero and you'll have someone making 30 grand paying for this massive round trip. So then what do you do? It's hard. 
it's really interesting though and that's kind of like where my my new position is kind of leaving me is trying to answer those sorts of questions so what's the perfect solution you've got one right uh income tax <laughs> okay i was thinking that but i'm like well that's not gonna no, fly it's, it's definitely not gonna fly like it's one of those things that people are insanely adverse to in washington because it is one of the few states that doesn't have one but really it's the least regressive like if you want to make sure that people who are poor aren't paying more than they should and people who are rich are paying the amounts they should then income tax is the way to go and, and you'd kind of be surprised by especially tech and like seattle millionaire culture or billionaire culture like, I can't name names, obviously, but we had a situation where a billionaire that you know <laughs> was asking us about how to create a certain kind of tax, and we were kind of going back and forth with them. Oh, we can't do income tax, because so we have these constitutional limitations, and you know we have to operate within this. And one of the things that he would bring up was, well, I could avoid that tax by doing this, and I will, so you need to make sure I can't. He's like, I'm not going to not avoid it if I can. So we definitely need something that I can't avoid. Like, this is not, it's not like, oh, out of the goodness of my heart, I'm going to donate money to do this. He's like, you need to make it so it has to be done. Otherwise, I'm not going to do it. Even though he was the one there advocating for it or trying to figure out how to do it. I thought that was incredibly interesting. There's a lot of things that surprised me about this job so far. Now, when did you start this? So I started in October and then the legislative session started in January and went through the end of April. And I actually do have a law that I have written that has passed. Congrats. Yeah. <laughs> what was it? Is it easy to summarize? Yeah, it's actually, it's only like three lines. It's a tax exemption for hospitals owned by a county managed by a state university. So basically it's teaching hospitals. Sounds like a good move. Yeah, I feel like it didn't have very much resistance. <laughs> I mean, thank God the real decisions are being left to the Illuminati. I mean, all the best decisions come from the Lemurians, actually. <laughs> I'm super curious what a more pragmatic-minded person would answer to this. Okay. If you could imagine a future that you'd like us to work toward, can you describe that future? What does that look like? Um, <laughs> you're right. As a, as a pragmatist, I'm probably not looking as far in the future as most of your guests would. I want to see universal single-payer health care, possibly with a voucher system like Australia's. I want to see universal basic income. I want to see a movement away from, from populism. I don't think I necessarily want like a borderless one world type situation, but I think something closer to the EU, but more worldwide where there's, you know, certain international human rights that are guaranteed across borders and you're more free to move around and, and that sort of thing would be nice. Definitely environmental concerns need to be made a million times more high priority. We're, we're at a place right now where, you know, arguably nothing that we can do will really stop catastrophe. Even as a country, if we made a major, major instant change, it would still only be a small fraction of the worldwide change that would potentially need to happen. So I think a unified world that is able to assert that sort of influence on places that have historically ignored it would be a, a huge step forward. Again, this is probably a lot more close future than far future as far as an ideal world, but... Well, we need the close future thinkers, too, because most of my answers have been almost science fiction-y. I'm not using that term disparagingly. I, I don't intend to, but I think I said in one of the episodes, like, uh, communal food foresting or that kind of thing. I really like those... Um, have you seen those tower farm things? I'm, I'm sure you have. Like the vert like vertical farming stuff, I think that's really interesting. Carbon capture, I think, is another thing that would be like if we were able to revolutionize carbon capture, that would be an awesome step forward. I don't know. And the environment is is in a situation where without a a paradigm shift in technology, we're pretty SOL at the moment. Like it's not it's not good. But I hold out hope that there's potentially some sort of technological advancement that could make it at least a slightly less massive catastrophe. I'm hoping that there's at least a possibility that when the Earth's resources are actually centered around finding and advancing that sort of technology, it could at least deaden the blow and not, you know, entirely wipe out the human race. Um, but we'll see what happens. <laughs> yeah, we'll see what happens. I do, I, you know, I hold out hope that some of these unknown unknowns are good. Yeah. Like right now, it looks like the techno fixes aren't robust or near enough to save us all. But fingers crossed, you know, maybe some something will come out of nowhere that'll at least buy us more time. I'm at the point where I definitely don't expect it to save us all, but <laughs> if it can save a couple more, <laughs> that, that might be all you can hope for. 
But I'm kind of wondering how you're feeling about all of this. We've heard a lot of things that you've been thinking about, but kind of what's that doing to you? Like we said a few times, I'm definitely more of a close future pragmatist. I think there's a pretty dismal picture of the far future, but I'm more concerned with the immediate future in terms of what I am doing to influence the future, if that makes sense. Yeah, I'm, trying to, make sense. I'm trying to be like where rubber meets the road, like boots on the ground. What do I do today? How do I exert influence? How do I actually get to a place where I can say something and someone listens? How can I do good at that level? Yeah, it makes sense to focus on that. That's a very practical strategy. And we were talking about this before, like you need people who are looking in the far future, you need people who are looking in the immediate future. And it's very important to have people out there who are looking at the far future to give someone more like me a context for what we should be pushing for at the moment. So even just like in the immediate future and where you've been putting your energy and the struggles you've been having, what does that feel like for you? Uh, it's definitely something I think about as to like whether or not I want to have kids and that sort of thing. Like what world are you putting them into? I am concerned about mass resource shortages and starvation and that sort of thing. I'm holding out hope that it is possible for technology to outpace that uh, once our resources are allocated correctly. But I know we're, we're either at a cliff or over the cliff in terms of that being a realistic possibility. At this point, it's more like, how do you dampen it, not how do you stop it? I'm lucky to be in a place where I don't have to immediately deal with the fallout. But yeah, I definitely like brings up like sort of existential, like what does this mean for humanity is a whole kind of questions. Yeah, the having kids question is an interesting way to frame it that we've explored in some previous episodes. But for you, you and your girlfriend of several years, you guys have gotten engaged. Yeah. Congratulations, thank you, thank you. by the way. So have you guys been talking about having kids? And has any of this come up? We've gone back and forth on whether or not we want to have kids. Some of it has to do with, man, this sounds like a hassle. And <laughs> sort of it's like... <laughs> um, Word. <laughs> and part of it is like, what kind of world are you dooming that person to live in? And like, is it even a moral act to have a kid at this point? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's something that's a factor for sure. What's your conclusion that you've come to so that I can stop thinking about it? Oh, I, I have not come to a conclusion. I definitely have not solved Damn. it, unfortunately. <laughs> well, it was worth a shot. All right, dude. Good talk. Thanks for coming on the show. Had a great time. Yeah, me too. We'll have to bring you on again sometime. You can tell me more about the salacious details of Washington state politics. That's it. That's the episode. It's all done. Music for this episode was One Snow Day Short by Uncle Milk folk guitar music track by D Video Guy, dubstep loop by Orbiscope, dubstep Melisma 1 by Ongatok, royalty-free Benny Hill theme style alternative by Orion Williams. Whoever still holds the copyright to the Benny Hill theme, can you please just release that? It's iconic. The happy birthday people finally gave up their copyright claim. Closing track is Living in Reverse by Broke for Free. Thanks to freesound.org and the Free Music Archive for all of their wonderful, wonderful resources. Thanks to all my listeners, all my guests, and the community on Discord for just being a bunch of great conversationalists, sharing links and memes and all sorts of stuff like that. Uh, anyway, fun fact, this is the end of Season 1. That's it. That's a wrap for Season 1. It's Now or Never will return. We'll be back someday for season two. We're going to be working on that. So look out for that. But that's it for season one. We'll have a comfortable little hiatus. And then maybe to fill the time, I've got some bonus material. I might put out some unreleased stuff, some bits that just didn't, I didn't have a place for them and stuff that I recorded but didn't wind up using. I don't know, who knows? Who knows about that? Anyway, if you want to support this podcast, just tell someone about it. Maybe they would like to listen to it. Or just be like, hey, I like the podcast. And I'll be like, thanks. You don't even have to leave a review. You just tell me, that's fine. That's cool too. That's all. Season one is over. It's over. Thanks everyone. Thanks all my guests over the season. It's been a wild and crazy ride. I'm at a, a very different place in my life. 
and in my career and emotionally. So this, this past season one has been just a, a really interesting, I think in retrospect, record of this emotional journey. And we're still going, still learning stuff, and still got plenty more to talk about. So excited about the future. Hope you are too, except for all the stuff to be scared about, but that's kind of a sort of compartmentalized that in my head. But the podcast's future, so I'm optimistic about that, you know. I think we'll get another several episodes out before we all die. Anyway, thanks again everyone. We'll see you see you later. Over and out for now. Christine and I are doing Mary Fuck Kill. Yes, we are. Yes. It all started when we were watching Broad City and Jeremy posed the question to me about Lincoln, Abby, and Alana. We agreed on Lincoln, Abby, Alana. Yeah. Abby gets killed. Kill Abby. Yes. Fuck Alana. Mm-hmm. And we marry Lincoln. We marry he's, Lincoln. He's quite marriageable. Marriage material. Right. And then it moved on to, I, I asked Jeremy. Bernie Sanders, Noam Chomsky, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Mm-hmm. And at first I said marry AOC because the other two are old. <laughs> so they're not going to last long. And fuck Bernie. But I realized that left me with killing Noam Chomsky, and I could not do that.